We're uh, three weeks into a sermon series called Slaves to Children, the Word of the Covenant. And essentially, it's a study about the Ten Commandments. So the last couple weeks, we have worked to establish uh, the context of God delivering commandments to his people Israel. And we're in the first commandment now, so we've done kind of our, our preface for two weeks. And so the first commandment found in Exodus 23 says, You shall have no other gods before me. So real quick, we're going to do kind of an overview, <clears throat> one of the events that have been taking place around this moment where God gives uh, Moses the first commandment and Moses delivers to the people. And so, again, the Hebrew people have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God used plagues and devastation on Egypt to, to rescue them and deliver them from that slavery. Uh, he prompts the Egyptians, they're so anxious to get rid of them in one moment that they give them gold and silver and, and supply for their journey. God goes with the Israel people, a cloud in the day to protect, a pillar of fire at night to heat. Uh, you'll remember uh, Ben talked about when, when they came to the Red Sea, God splits the Red Sea open, an example of the resurrection, and the people walk through. Uh, as they're in the wilderness, he does everything from feeding uh, the Hebrew people with manna from heaven. There's, there's bitter water that he turns sweet. Strike a rock, water comes out. So there's all these examples of God being with his people. All these examples of God taking care of his people, providing everything that they would need. Uh, there's, there's attack, the Amalekites. We remember the story when Joshua and the army is fighting the Amalekites and Moses is up and if he holds his hands up, to God, they win, and if they fall down, they lose, and so Aaron and her hold them up. So God is doing all kinds of incredible things in the middle and surrounding um, this moment where he begins to deliver uh, his word, the, the Ten Commandments, the law, in a very tangible way to his people. So those are the events, but there's some interesting dialogue that takes place as well that I think is very important for us to recognize. Uh, God's dialogue between him um, the, his servants and, and the people of Israel. To start with in Hebrew, or I'm sorry, in Genesis 15, this is where God makes a covenant with Abraham, and essentially he says, I will bless you, and I will use you to be a blessing to all the earth. In Deuteronomy 4, 6, and 8, I think it captures a lot of God's heart and his promises to uh, the Israel people. It says this, keep them, he's referring to his commandments, and do them. For that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the people, who when they hear of all these statutes, they will say, Surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as Yahweh or the Lord is to us when we call upon him? And what great nation has statutes so righteous? So not only is God promising um, blessing to them, but he says, if you keep my commandments, if you follow hard after me, you are going to be, New Testament language, a light to the world, right? People will see you, look at you, and say, what nation is there that their God is so close, so personal, so with them? If they're full of righteousness, they're full of wisdom, they're full of understanding. We're starting to get a glimpse of God's cosmic purpose here, where he's going to use people to draw the world to himself. In Deuteronomy 6.3, the dialogue goes like this, be careful to keep my commandments that it may go well with you. Jump to verse 18 and it says, and you shall do what is good and right in the sight of God that it may go well with you. 
Verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. So now God continues to put emphasis, kind of the, if you follow me, if you take these commandments to heart, if you be careful to keep them, what's his promise? It's going to be well with you. You're going to be blessed. You will have wisdom. You will have understanding. It'll be for your good always. So that's the context before we jump into the first commandment. So in Exodus 2-3, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. And the verse right before that, God reminds them of some things. He reminds them of his heart for them, which in my life, if I just focus on one of the things God says, if I kind of forget his heart for me, it can get heavy. It can feel impossible to to keep up. Uh, But when I remember God's heart for me, then his commandments, his uh, his requests of me, his way of doing things takes on a whole new light. And this is what he, he, he does the same for his people in Exodus. So verse 2, right before he gives the first commandment, it says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he, he continues to set the preface, you once were a slave, and I loved you so much that I freed you. And as Ben shared with us last week, over and over and over, when God gives Moses this plea to give to Pharaoh, it says, free my people, so what? That they may serve me. Let my people go, that they may worship me. Let my people go, that they may serve me. So there's this purpose that we get in our freedom. There's this purpose that the Hebrews get in their freedom, and it's to worship and to serve and to glorify God. Because it's almost as if he's saying, when you serve me, When you honor me, it'll be for your good. It'll be for my glory. It'll establish my kingdom. It'll draw more people and attract more people to the gracious, powerful, all-wise, perfect God. And so they will enter into this covenant with me. And essentially, the world will be a better place. In some ways, this is what we understand when Jesus says, Thy kingdom come." And so way back thousands of years ago, you see, again, the same story that God is using to expel evil, expel oppression, expel slavery in order to glorify himself and to bless his creation, man and woman. John Piper made famous, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So, the first commandment is kind of a warning. It's, uh, it's packaged in, in the negative. In other words, what to say no to. It says, you shall have no other gods before me, or some translations say, beside me, you shall have no other gods. And I see this again as God establishing a love relationship with his people, that again says, for this love relationship, for this deep intimacy to work, uh, we're going to have to be, uh, I'm going to have to be the, the top of your heart. I love you so much that I don't want to share you with anyone. And we understand this. When we engage in love relationships uh, on earth, a husband and a wife, there's, there's an agreement and an understanding that uh, we will have no other lovers or it will totally disrupt what we have together, Right? And so in some ways, this is God saying, this is going to be so beautiful if I love you and you love me, and nothing gets in the way of that. So the negative would be, 
a warning against having other lovers. The, the implied positive is what? So that's the no. What's the yes? The yes is the greatest commandment. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in New Testament. You've heard it over and over. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. I think it's important for us to recognize there are no blank spaces in your heart. In other words, your heart in each moment will gravitate its allegiance, its love, its devotion to something. Probably heard that we are, we are worshiping beings, so we will worship something. So the grand picture, the, the trajectory of your life, the entire uh, themes and ethos of your life, your heart will be geared towards something. But I have found that in each moment, there's, there's never really a blank space for my heart. It's always striving for some sort of affection. It's always committing itself. It's always giving allegiance to something. And so God knows this, and so the first commandment is a, is a strong warning against idolatry. In other words, it's, it's anything that I value more than God, anything that I commit more allegiance to than God, anything that dictates my behavior more than my surrender and submission to God. What things could these be? Uh, on the surface, we say, well, well, maybe you're one who focuses on materialistic things. And so you create your life and you strategize the pieces of your life to accumulate material things, whether that be toys or, who knows, houses or whatnot. And so behind all that, I'm sure, for a lot of us is, one, possibly uh, an idol of pleasure. We want convenience, we want pleasure, and so we're willing to pursue that ahead of the things that God gives us. Or perhaps it's to feel important, right? If I present the right way, if I have the right things, if I hang around with the right people, then people will look with me in esteem, and then I'll feel good about myself. So we realize, boy, if my reputation is the thing that I have allegiance to, is the thing that holds on to my heart, is the thing that uh, I spend the most time trying to position and strategize, uh, we recognize that that is an idol of our heart. Perhaps it's the success of our kids. So we, we recognize, okay, I don't, I don't want to be materialistic. That seems so American and non-Christian. So we, we fight like crazy to push against that. But boy, ask me about how my kids are doing or, or ask them the kind of pressure I put on them to be successful. Right? It doesn't matter if they're this big or if they're 17 going into their senior year and we are trying to figure out what they're going to do for the rest of their life. And don't tell me you're going to be a musician. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, we, so we push and push, and there's nothing wrong with most of these encouragements. There's nothing wrong with things until what? Until we gravitate our hearts to those above God. Some indicators in my life, some indicators that I've seen that, that I'm guilty of this. What are the things that make you insanely anxious or worried about if they're threatened to be lost? If this happened, I don't know how I would handle it. What things do you spend the most time worrying about? There's a good chance that could be an idol. Or how about the emotion of anger? What things really tip the scale for you when, when they're threatened or when, the, when they are lost, when someone pushes against them. 
So we all have these little things that we hold on to, and most of the time they produce anxiety or anger, depends on kind of your fabric, right? But those are emotional, I guess, indicators or, or metrics that we can say, whoa, maybe this thing has too much of my heart. And God is calling us, and he recognizes we, uh, we mentioned last week, we are idle factories. We continue to make them. We continue to produce them. How about this? Where is your time? Where is your money? Where are just your thoughts that you obsess about? What do your actions and your calendar say about your life? Those are good indicators of what you value most. And so take some time checking in to where your money goes, what's on your calendar. What are you anxious about? What are you angry about? What do you obsess over and over and over? And you guys have heard me say it before. I think we're, we're not great at diagnosing ourselves. So I need people in my life to tap me on the shoulder to say, hey, you're committing a lot of time to this. Hey, I've seen some, some ugly things come out of you when this happens. Surround yourself with people that will talk to you about that. Ezekiel 16 is a pretty graphic picture of idolatry. And I'm, I'm convinced that, that freedom means more when you know what prison feels like. Freedom means more when you know what slavery feels like. And last week, we established Christ saying that if you uh, are guilty of sin, you're a slave to sin. And as Christians, we understand that we were in total bondage to sin. And so I think it's important to remember where we came from. Uh, there's themes in so many of the books of the Bible that show here's who you were, here's who you are. The good news means a lot more when you've tasted the bad, right? And so this is, uh, in some ways, what God is showing us in Ezekiel 16. It gives this picture. I'm going to bounce around a little bit, so you guys might have to just listen. Uh, it says, And for as your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things out of compassion, but you were cast out in the open field. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. I made you grow up and become tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. So he's given this picture of this, this baby abandoned and growing up into a beautiful female. This is kind of the bride imagery. He says, When I passed by you again, I saw you were at the age for love, and I spread my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Covering, another word for that is anointing. I made my vow and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Real similar to what's going on in the Ten Commandments, right? Before and after. Then I bathed you with water and washed the blood and anointed you with oil and I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist, chains on your neck, a ring in your nose. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate the fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty." And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed upon you, declares the Lord. So get the picture. 
of this great rescue, but not only I'm going to rescue and then send you on your way. This great rescue and this great process of beautification, this great process of claiming you as mine, as entering into deep and personal relationship. But here's what the bride does. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. And it goes on to paint this graphic scene of what happens when you take the gifts that God has given us, when you take all of the graces that he has poured upon you, whether it be the will to work hard or the intelligence to create, all of the things that God has poured on us totally, completely by his grace. And he wants those things to glorify himself for us to use those talents, those abilities to bring honor back to him and to further his kingdom. And how guilty are we of taking the things that he gave us and using them to play the whore, using them to edify herself, using them to milk affection and affirmation from other people. James says that all good things come from the Father. And so I'm pretty convinced that any time that I'm guilty of idolatry, I'm also guilty of adultery before my God. And not only am I just using my resources, I'm using the resources that he graciously gave me when I was dead in my sin, when I was wallowing in my blood, when he declared to me, live. So the importance of recognizing the seriousness of idolatry and then the beauty of repentance. All of Scripture says, repent. Why? So that times of refreshment may come. Repent. Just to stay there and feel guilty and bad? No. So that you may glorify me and live. Repentance is always this understanding of slavery and wrong in order to lead to life. And brothers and sisters, I am convinced that if you don't understand the full measure of the cross and the truth of the resurrection, this kind of message will crush you. We, we can't afford to recognize our adultery. We can't afford to recognize the depth of our betrayal. We can't afford to recognize grabbing a gift and, and playing the whore unless we recognize the grace and compassion and the work of Jesus Christ. And when that becomes more and more real and we remind each other over that, then this kind of news spurs on good works. It spurs on a repentance that leads to joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. And I am convinced, just like Hebrews, we, at that point we enter into the land. At that point we take possession of the blessing. At that point we become beacons on a hill. At that point we become the salt of the earth that we walk in and we begin to live into our identity, the holy ones, the saints, the most excellent ones. But without the cross, without an understanding of my, my tendency for idolatry, those things become watered down. And any time the grace of God becomes watered down, we water down the law of God. And when we water down the law of God, we start settling for less. Ecclesiastes, a while back we talked about this, and one of the things that, that was impressed upon me that, that I took away from that was this idea, thou shalt have no other gods. Again, the implied is worship me above all else. And, and my takeaway that I think was, was expressed greatly in that series was when God is first in my heart, all of the second things become beautiful and meaningful. When God is not, 
everything loses its value, everything loses its meaning. Whereas Solomon says, it's all smoke, it disappears. Brennan Manning, I heard say that there's one question that Christ asks all people. Do you believe that I love you? Do you believe that I love you? Because if I do, then coming underneath God's commands, I recognize is for my good. It is the best place for me to be. It is best for everybody around me. So when we're looking at it, idolatry and we're trying to figure out what are we guilty of, what are we trying to run towards, I'm convinced what you're running towards is more important than what you're running from. But recognize and bring yourself to the level of this love story, and I think it will begin to frame God's do's and don'ts in a whole new light. And there's plenty of do's and don'ts in the Bible. There are. There's plenty of conditions in the Bible. But all of it is meant to be seen through this lens of love. So continue to bring yourself back to that. Deuteronomy 4 goes on to say, in a lot of different ways, God knows the propensity of our heart, so he says, be careful not to make carved images. Be careful not to create things that are um, inconsistent with what I have asked you. Because I've asked you to do a lot of specific things. And so be careful to remember what I have done and not to go your own way and to play your own God and to worship other things or even to worship me your own way. In other words, he's saying, continue to align and submit with the things I've asked you to do. New Testament says this, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if we pull Romans 12, 1 and 2 back and, and kind of mirror it over the Hebrew people, we recognize that the, the, the world that they were in was rampant with false gods, rampant with false ways of worship, rampant with oppression and sacrifice of all kinds of things and, and carved images. That's, that's the culture that they'd been enslaved in for a long, long time. And God says, you people are going to be different. And in Romans, he brings us back, and we know as Christians in today that we are called to be in the world, but not of the world, so that people might see our good works and do what? Glorify our Father who is in heaven. So my question is, how do we war against this idolatry that we're all so prone to drift in? How do we war against it? There's probably a ton of different ways, but I think one way, if we, if we kind of take the Galatians 5.16 approach, Galatians 5.16 says, walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. What you say yes to will kind of block out the no. So I think to increase our hearts for God is a huge way to war against idolatry. Remember the old hymn, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The more you look at Jesus, the less the counterfeits sparkle. But his light and his radiance gets beautiful, more and more beautiful. All those other things fade. So the next question is, how do we do that? I'm going to give you some action steps. I'm going to give you some challenge. I'm going to give you some discipline. Now remember, all this stuff 
ought to be in the context of you're already loved. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. But here's my challenge. Get in Scripture at least one time a day. At least one time a day, get in front of Scripture and read. Seven times a day, pray. You can pick six, eight, whatever. But be intentional. Seven times a day, say a prayer. Whether you're on the road and you have, you know, five, ten minutes to really get into it, or whether you're walking from your office to another person's office and you just throw up one of these, God, I see you, thank you for your love. And at least once a day, tell someone I love you. Why do we throw that one in there? We just got done with 1 John, right? And God totally links loving people and loving God together. So, so get in the Word at least one time a day. Pray seven times a day, and at least once a day, tell somebody I love you. Now, if you're like me, you might write these things down, and then you're going down the hill, and all of a sudden something happens, and they're gone, and then two days later you remember, and then you're like, oh yeah, you feel bad about it, but you don't do anything with it, right? So we're all pretty, a lot of us are pretty attached to these little things called cell phones, and we put alarms in there, right? And so what if for the next month, whenever is the best time of day for you to get in the Word, Throw an alarm in there. Maybe it's 5.30 a.m., maybe it's 2 p.m., and the alarm just says scripture. What if at 7 a.m. or 7 p.m. it just says, I love you, with quotes? And it's just your reminder, some point today, I'm going to make sure somebody knows that I love them. What if every hour on the hour, your alarm goes off that says pray? Now again, doing those things won't necessarily increase your affections towards God. Doing those things could lead to guilt if you have the wrong lens. Doing those things could cause you to measure yourself up if I sit down with Joe and he's done them and I haven't. But I bet if a group of people did those things consistently for 30 days, I would not be surprised if Jesus' face got brighter and brighter in your eyes. So I think the greatest way to battle idolatry is in some ways to do what you're doing now. Keep presenting yourself to God to see his glory, to see his beauty, to focus on him, and all those things that your heart is prone to, you'll slowly start to see fall away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the the pictures that we have when we look back at history and how you have dealt with your people. Uh, I, I need and you've given me so many different ways to understand your love for me, so many different ways to truly or finally believe that you will never leave me, so many different stories and pictures of your deliverance. And so most of us can look at our life and, and we have these personal examples of how you saved us, that you rescued us. But we also see that in other people's lives, and we also see that in the Hebrew people's lives. And I pray that we would lock on to those things, God, and we would recognize and remember that uh, our greatest good, we enter our glory when we come underneath you, when we, when we burn down, destroy, and tear apart all the idols of our hearts, and we let you reign as our lover and as our king. God, your word, Romans 10, 11, which I guess would be my, my takeaway verse, 
It says, trust in the Lord and you will not be disappointed. Trust in the Lord and you will not be disappointed. Sustain us during the times where we don't feel that. Sustain us during the times where we don't sense that reward. And grant us faith to know that, that it is coming. Continue to establish your kingdom in my heart, in the hearts of Rimrock Church, and everywhere that we go. We love you and we praise you for your grace. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.